We also know that 93% of school shootings at a minimum are planned, are not even planned just that day or the day before. They are well planned where there's a lot of time to figure out that something bad is going to happen. Welcome to Crime News Insider. This is Jorge Delbertillo. And with me, as always, is Lori Hoff. How are you doing, Lori? I'm doing well. Nice to see you, Jorge. Nice to see you. Uh, Today, we're bringing a a special episode after the Uvalde shooting on May 24th, 2022, where an 18-year-old fatally shot 19 students and two teachers and wounded several others. Just a horrific, horrific school shooting in our country. And in this special episode, we're bringing you two interviews. Our first interview is with Deputy District Attorney Wendy Patrick, who is a threat assessment expert. And our second interview is with San Diego County District Attorney Summer Steffen, who is the lead prosecutor in the 2010 elementary school shooting in Carlsbad, California. Let's go now to our first interview with Deputy District Attorney Wendy Patrick. Wendy Patrick, in in her time at the district attorney's office here in San Diego, she's handled a steady stream of threat assessment cases, many involving sensitive issues. She has also devoted a significant amount of time over the last 23 years in researching, writing, and training on the science of threat assessment. She's the immediate past president of the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals, San Diego chapter, sergeant of arms of the ATAP National Board and an ATAP Certified Threat Manager. She is an Institute of Criminal Investigation Certified Instructor for Law Enforcement, is certified by the California Practical Chaplain Association as a chaplain and certified debriefer emergency services, and as a critical incident stress debriefer by the Ontario Critical Incident Stress Foundation. Wendy Patrick, thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. So obviously we're recording this a week after this horrible and tragic uh, event in Uvalde. Can you tell us what makes the Texas case different? Oh, you know, first of all, our hearts and prayers go out to that community. You know, our, our memory of high school graduation should be, you know, the, the senior prom, not hiding in a classroom during a school shooting, stepping over bodies of your peers. You know, we we have this discussion and revelation every time another one of these things happens. But then we ask ourselves the question that you just did. What's different? Now, obviously, my answer would be there's always something different about each school shooting. In this particular case, I would say one of the distinguishing factors is unlike some of these big city crime sprees, shootings, this actually happened in a small, tight knit community, Mm. which reminds us that this kind of violence can happen anywhere. But why do I bring up the fact that it was a small, tight knit community? Because it's within those areas where we have this this almost um, security of safety where, you know, people may have grown up keeping their doors unlocked at night. Some of us grew up in areas like that. Right. We're even more surprised that these tight knit communities where everybody thinks that they know everybody else can still be victimized in this fashion. And that is one of the distinguishing factors that I would say kind of makes this terrible tragedy in Uvalde a little bit different than some of the other ones we've heard about. Yeah, it's really just resonated. Obviously, it's tragic wherever it occurs, but it's something about this has been lasting. And here we are a week out afterwards, and it's still on the minds of many Americans and people throughout the world. 
how do you think that this fits into the narrative of how, how do we go about keeping our kids safe in school? I mean, we, every, every parent is thinking that right now. And I'm sure these kids, you know, you see in the interview, they don't want to go back to school. They rightfully don't feel safe to go back to school. How do we keep kids safe in school? You know, we learn a little bit from every one of these mass shootings that help us answer the question as to how can we continue the the quest to make our kids as safe as possible. Part of that includes a conversation with our kids. You know, I remember growing up, we had earthquake drills and fire drills. You probably remember the same thing. We had all these different types of drills that were designed to prepare our precious young ones for the, the worst case scenario. Nowadays, of course, we have shooter drills in case, God forbid, bullets start flying in the middle of class as opposed to some of these other natural disasters we prepared for. So in having those discussions, yes, it is true. We also have to make sure that all this discussion is age appropriate. I have to say, though, kids know more than we think they do, because even if it's not the parents that are letting the kids in on all of these gruesome details about each one of these mass shootings, they're going to hear it at school. They're going to hear it from peers. They're going to hear it from teachers. And in terms of the ways in which we can continue to keep our kids safe, we can continue to evolve our techniques by looking at how are the bad guys operating. So a couple ideas, obviously we know how to identify hot spots. You know, what, what are the areas that are most susceptible to breach in the perimeter of a school, in a classroom? Where are the windows? Where are the doors? Where are, is there a school resource officer who's armed and who's uh, attached to every school or like in a community like this, you know, a, a smaller population? Do you maybe not have a one-to-one ratio of, of armed school resource officers? What about the training? Do you simply say, well, we're going to train the the teachers and the people that work on campus, or are we going to broaden that training to include the bus drivers, the the resource officers that maybe aren't on campus, but might be called to a campus event? How about the custodians? I mean, in other words, how broadly can we train everyone that might be in a position to stop the next school shooter? You know, every time we have something like this happen, we sort of reevaluate what should that training look like and how many people should be involved. But I have to say, you know, sometimes we have to just stop and think, why wouldn't we want as many people possible to be prepared to protect themselves and our precious young people if, God forbid, somebody should see something? Let's make it easy for them to say something on a lot of different levels. Yeah, let's let's talk about that because I know a lot of people in many communities are wondering how we can go about spotting these red flags. And uh, since you're a threat assessment professional, can you talk about some of the red flags that might indicate to a trained professional or maybe might indicate to the layperson that this is something to be concerned about? Well, we always look first towards, you know, what is somebody going to do, especially if we're talking about school shooters and young people, what did they say they were going to do? And therein lies the challenge with all of these cases. It would be great if there were enough people to constantly sit and scour social media to find all of the chatter that goes on from everyone that ever raised a flag that they may be a behavioral problem or maybe thinking about doing something like this. Do we say it's the fault of the family? What about the friends? What about those that 
were in a position to have done or said something differently had they taken the person seriously. So we all know the danger in sort of retroactively, you know, looking at red flags today and saying, oh, we wish we'd seen that. So that says, how can we get out in front of the issue and ensure that we know enough about our peers, our, our parents, our kids, our, you know, everybody that might be in a position to, God forbid, be considering doing something harmful. How can we be in a position to make sure nobody is ignored? We've all by this time seen all of the films about what it looks like fr- through the eyes of a troubled teen who nobody pays attention to, who is the, the type of person that grievance collects, that has these behavioral issues. But we also know that it's a mix of provocation plus predisposition Mm -hmm. to actually decide to obtain a weapon in this case, in the Uvalde case, two weapons legally once he reached the age of 18 and then, and then, you know, carry something like this out. So we always want to back up that timeline and say, you know, who could have seen something sooner? But I just have to say, you know, a lot of people are doing a lot of doing a very good job. And I always want to ask, I wonder how many mass shootings we prevent every day Mm. by all of the good work that we're doing on the front end of this threat assessment analysis. Yeah, it's it's difficult. It's always difficult to measure how effective preventative measures are, right? Yeah. And you can't have these uh, counterfactuals that are saying, oh, because we did this, we absolutely prevented it. But there has been evidence. There has been some cases where we here, even in San Diego, have likely stopped uh, a mass shooting. So, Wendy, just jumping off that, when we talk about social media presence and red flags, what can we be looking out for in terms of online cues or red flags that we need to be aware of? You know, Lori, it's such a great question because especially when we're talking about young people, we almost find it suspicious when we can't find a digital profile. In other words, we naturally assume that young people know how to use social media and they are on their They're talking about what they're going to do before they do it. That's called leakage. And many of them are, which is what allows us to avert uh, so much disaster. But here is the challenge. We've almost got to keep up with what are the newest and, and most prolific social media sites that dangerous people are using. I mean, it's unlikely, although I should say not impossible, that they're going to be transmitting these ideas on Facebook. Everybody would see it there right. or, or even necessarily Instagram. But what kind of more deviant, non-mainstream, if you will, what other kinds of platforms have become popular? Remember, these platforms rise and fall as they're shut down sometimes after they're being used nefariously. But what kinds of platforms might somebody who's actually planning a mass shooting, what might they gravitate towards? What might they say? Who might be in the best position to see it? And then, of course, back to the neighborhood watch idea. How can good people be watching those sites, monitoring for this chatter that would be available to hopefully be able to thwart one of these attempts if only we saw what we wish we'd seen in retrospect sooner? So we can't rely on law enforcement to monitor all of these different platforms. And some of these platforms are encrypted end to end. So we basically rely on other people that, that are around this, the next shooter to be vigilant and have their senses alerted to something that might be suspicious. And, you know, there's that mantra, if you see something, say something, it might actually prevent another massacre. 
What a great point. So law enforcement, you know, many members of law enforcement are saying, you know, we, we may not be the ones in the best position to be the most tech savvy, to be able to, to guess, to forecast, to predict proactively what sites that these people are going to gravitate towards. The users of the sites are themselves in that best position. And that's partially why it is people that are also using some of these fringe sites or however we want to characterize them. They come forward after the fact and say, look, I took a bunch of screenshots. Let me tell you who this person was and what he said, et cetera. Now, of course, we always wish we'd had that information sooner, but it's always valuable to learn what some of these shooters do and say and how they prepare and where they go to purchase their weapons. You know, knowledge is always power when it comes to what can we learn that'll help us prevent the next mass shooting instead of taking it apart, analyzing it, second guessing it, you know, looking at it in retrospect. We want to be looking at that from a forward thinking standpoint as to how can we prevent it. And I think I think prevention right now needs to be on everybody's minds. But, you know, I think a lot of people say, well, maybe they're not serious. You know, maybe they're joking or maybe this is just an idle threat or an empty threat. And maybe it's not worthy of police involvement. And I think the message, tell me if I'm wrong, Wendy, is it, 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 we have to take it all seriously at this point and let, let the authorities sift through that. You know, exactly if there's no right. health issues, let the, let the authorities sift through and figure out where that needs to go. You know, if it's a criminal prosecution on the front end or, or a mental health intervention. That's exactly right. So we're back to the hunters versus the howlers. You know, many people look at somebody that uh, makes threats and says, oh, they're looking for attention instead of saying, let's leave it to the professionals who are the best equipped to make that analysis. Uh, it, it, it is true. We do worry about, you know, the so-called hunters, those that we don't see coming. But it's also true that so many of these shooters did say something before they committed the act. So you're right. We have to take everything seriously seriously in an abundance of caution and then leave it to those that are in the best position to be able to sort through, well, what are we going to look at now and how are we going to protect the intended target or targets if God forbid this is somebody that actually should be taken seriously? They want to make sure that they're prepared. What is your message that you would say to the community of how you can be vigilant and help prevent the next mass shooting? Oh, you know, I always go back to the community watch model. And of course, I, like you and many of our listeners, grew up in, in neighborhoods where there was a, you know, community watch sign at the end of the block. And I always thought to myself, community watch is only as good as the people who are watching. If nobody is actually participating in terms of being that ground patrol, the eyes and ears of law enforcement on the ground in the community, we're not going to have a very robust community watch program. And the best thing that we can say comes out of uh, learning more about the way mass shooters operate, the way the way schools respond to threats, the difference between hunters and howlers. Obviously, there are some people that make threats and then there are others that just commit carnage without announcing their arrival. Those would be the hunters. The more we learn about the threat assessment analysis as individuals, as community groups, as neighbors, as friends, as teachers, the better equipped we are to work collectively to protect each other. And that's the ultimate goal is to make sure we don't ever have to read about another mass shooting on campus or any place else. Let's stay optimistic and work together towards that goal. 
Well, thank you so much, Wendy. You are an expert in all areas of, of so many. Well, you're an expert in so many areas. Oh, you are so nice, Lori. Including threat assessment and, you know, talk, walking us through these very tough issues that we unfortunately continue to find ourselves in. Yes. Thank you so much for joining the podcast, Wendy. We really appreciate your expertise and your time. Thank you guys so much for having me. Okay, so that was our interview with Deputy DA Wendy Patrick, a threat assessment expert. Now let's turn to our interview of District Attorney Summer Steffen, a person who probably needs no introduction, but she has been a prosecutor for over 30 years and was elected as San Diego District Attorney in 2018. If you missed it, make sure to check out episode 11, where we spoke with her about her career. But for now, we bring you our interview with Summer Steffen. San Diego is no stranger to school shootings. In 1979, we had a shooting at the Cleveland Elementary School. 1996, a shooting at San Diego State University. 2001, there were two shootings, one at Santana High School and another at Granite Hills High School. And then finally, in 2010, in Carlsbad at the Kelly Elementary School, several shootings were shot, but fortunately, all survived. And who better to bring on to talk about this prosecution here in San Diego County and the person who developed a a school threat assessment protocol is our very own district attorney, Summer Steffen. Summer, thank you for coming on the podcast again. Thank you so much for covering this very important subject. Yeah, we we try to be um, timely and I I just wish we didn't have to cover this subject. And it's, it's a sad thing to have to cover a lot of lives were lost and we can, there's a lot of back and forth right now about could it have been prevented and things that could have been done differently. But I think what, what lessons we can take from this, we can definitely apply to San Diego and the things that are already in place that you helped to develop. Can you tell us a little bit, just remind us about the Kelly school shooting that you were involved with and how, how you came to um, be the person that actually prosecuted that case. Yes, and of course, our our hearts break with all victims. But when you hear that your victims were so young at the beginning of their life, it is it's haunting. Um, I know it's haunting for our team and we we are uh, protectors you know as a da's office we want to be there to protect them but like you said the best we can do is is to try to save a life in the future which we believe that is what we've done in san diego and it started with the kelly elementary school shooting that i handled i was the chief of the north county branch and it was a friday uh, in October of uh, 2010, when um, the shooting happened, and immediately, you know, this was uh, the kind of case that you just are holding your breath, hoping that no lives were lost. And uh, got in the car, went to the Carlsbad Police Department to begin advising and helping with the case. And two little girls were being lifelighted. Um, with, you know, what looked like, you know, life endangering um, shotgun wounds from close range that they were shot. Amazingly, I'll start with the good news. They survived. Mm. Um, And that was pretty miraculous because usually when you've got 
two little girls that were um, six and seven years old and being shot at close range that that does not usually end well. So that was amazing. But uh, this perpetrator, this shooter really meant to do maximum damage. He had, you know, extra ammunition with him. He picked a time that the kids would be on the playground, that there would be the most amount of kids, which shows you that he was casing the school and knew exactly it was around the lunch hour where a lot of the grades were out there, second, third, and fourth grade were intersecting to have lunch. So there were over 150 kids on the playground at that time. We had this scene with, you know, 50 very, very young witnesses, but their story was super important. And of course, I was supposed to assign this case to someone else to handle, but I could not leave the case. I I wanted to stay on it myself and brought aboard Pat Espinoza, a great prosecutor, to work alongside me on the case. And that began our journey. And the case, uh, as we know from school shooters, they often don't survive, but He um, surrendered peacefully. He wanted to live. He didn't care that he took the lives of these little kids. And then uh, he claimed insanity. And of course, we know that in any case where children are shot, that is not a normal act. You know, murder is not a normal act. But this was goal-directed, planned behavior. And thankfully, with um, a lot of hard work, And, you know, spending so much time at the school, having pizza with the kids on a Friday without talking to them about the case so that they can feel comfortable with the court system, doing a kids in court. So they felt comfortable because they were necessary witnesses in our system of justice doesn't allow you to not have confrontation, even if it's a child. Uh, We were able to convict, send him away for the rest of his life. But the case, and I know we're going to talk about this, haunted me in that this question kept coming to my mind. And that was, what could we have done to have prevented the shooting in the first place? Right. Right. You know, uh, this defendant, Brendan O'Rourke, 41 years old, uh, were there any warning signs that he was planning on committing this mass shooting at the school? Very clearly, not to the school itself, but he had sent, you know, uh, I think we, we calculated about 67 emails in which in one form or another, and in one of them very directly, told his own brother that he was going to shoot up kids in an elementary school. There was no question. It was very clear what he was going to do. And it was repeated. But yet his brother just uh, thought it was a joke, didn't take it seriously, didn't tell anybody about it. And what is really important about this is this is absolutely consistent with all of the school shootings. We know that 80% tell at least one person what their plan is, that um, 60% tell two in 60% of the cases, two people are told about the plan. And we also know that 93% of school shootings at a minimum are planned, are not even planned just that day or the day before, 
they are well planned where there's a lot of time to figure out that something bad is going to happen. But the issue that we have is that most people, bystanders, who are the real answer to this, either don't take it seriously or think it's none of my business or just think that it's too far-fetched to be uh, true and kind of think to themselves, what can I possibly do? And to all those answers, of course, we know that people can be saved and lives can be saved if people who see something say something. And second part of this, that when they say something, there is a clear plan and protocol on what will the person receiving this information, whether it's law enforcement, whether it's a school, um, what will, whether it's a DA's office, what will they do in response to receiving this information? And you mentioned protocols. How, how have you taken those lessons and applied them? You know, seeing this pain from this particular uh, case, knowing that the kids, even the ones that weren't shot, suffered nightmares. They, you know, some of them are still in therapy. One of the little girls, um, you know, had a breakdown and needed to go back into therapy, even now, years later. So we know that these things have long-term impact. So we knew that we needed to really deep dive and figure out what can we track back and learn. And we took all those lessons and in San Diego, we established a protocol. We haven't seen anywhere else that has a protocol that is evidence-based with all 42 school districts. We're, of course, the second largest county in the state. We're fifth or sixth largest in the nation. And so the fact that we were able to do such a coordinated protocol definitely speaks to the ability to do this in every place across the nation. And what this protocol did is it brought the actual evidence that we've learned from multiple studies of the warning signs, and of the the, um, solutions that can be brought and put a very specific response that law enforcement would have, school officials would have, prosecutors would have, and the responsibility of the community. All schools signed on to it. All law enforcement signed on to it. In 2018, this protocol passed. And just very interesting little data point is we saw the cases that came into our office to be reviewed jumped to 69 cases from 23 cases Mm. once the protocol came in place, which means that we were missing things. People now had something where they knew exactly what they needed to do and how to do it. And it was cookie cutter and clear and did not leave the option for personal opinions, which are very dangerous when you're dealing with lives, which is where people kind of based on stereotypes and hunches decide what is a real threat and what isn't a real threat. What's a joke and what isn't a joke instead of letting professionals handle it. 
of course, we brought along a threat assessment team so that when these threats come in, they are assessed by a psychiatrist, psychologist, a threat specialist, law enforcement, our prosecutor, our own Andrea Lopez, who became a complete expert on this. Uh, the school has people on this threat assessment management, and all the cases are reviewed to see what are these signs and what do we need to do. In the last 16 months, just to kind of track now that the schools are reopening, we wanted to make sure our protocol was completely solid. So what we did is we brought the U.S. Secret Service and their National Center for Threats and we work together to update our protocol. So in 20, in November of 2021, the protocol was again updated with the latest, most evidence-based information, again, with all schools coming on board. We've received 43 cases, 10 were charged. This is very important because 10 were charged as crimes, but all of the others they were still handled. They were logged, whether it was a mental health need, a cry for help. All of that brought the right level of intervention to the person making the threat. And I imagine you have with so many with the team and you're able to share information. We we do a much better job at not having those gaps or missing, like you said, those missing, missing potential shooters that may, that may have been result, you know, resulted in something deadly. So we are, we are on the front end of, of the prevention side, which often, you know, as prosecutors, we don't, we don't get to be, we are often receiving, you know, the aftermath and dealing with, you know, picking up the pieces, but it's really nice to see you and our team working on the front end to try to prevent things like this from happening. That's right. And that that is the real win. The real win is if you can prevent the shooting, the harm in the first place. As you know, our office works on those three pillars of ethical prosecution, protection of victims and prevention before it happens. It takes a lot of resources and dedication. Why? Because it's really um, easy to track successes in terms of prosecuting someone who's already hurt someone. Our right. team knows what we're doing and we do that very well. What's hard to track is how many cases were prevented. Uh, how many wins did we have that are gonna translate into a lifetime of someone living and their family not suffering and their community. But I tell you, we feel pretty sure that we have prevented school shootings. We came very close where in a few cases, the person was no longer in the thinking about it, a theory, but had started to amass their weapons, had a very specific target, specific plan. When we came in and interrupted that through search warrants, through following open source social media, through coming in and stopping it. And that's what keeps the team going. It's those stories that don't make the headlines. We don't want to be in the headlines. We just want to save lives. Yeah. Right. 
Thank you so much, Summer, for being on this program and, and reminding us what, what is important. I'm sorry we had to, you know, come together again on, on such a sad topic because it's it's really a, a, a tragedy that we all feel and we all hope that that we don't have to see it here um, in San Diego, but nobody should have to should have to see it anywhere they live. And so thank you for this this moment out of your day. We know you're very busy and for all the work you do to keep San Diego safe. Absolutely. And, you know, anywhere in the nation that that hears this uh, podcast that needs our team, we will travel to you. We will help you set up a protocol. We would be honored to stand alongside any community. And in our community, as your DA, I want to remind everybody out there that if you see something, say something, you cannot get in trouble for for getting it wrong. We want to hear about it. And just trust that we have a clear path on how we investigate and interrupt that harm before it takes place. Summer Stephan, the San Diego County District Attorney. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. This has been a special episode on school shootings with Deputy DA Wendy Patrick and District Attorney Summer Stephan. We know at this time people are mourning and grieving this tragic loss of life from all of us at the San Diego Deputy DA Association and the Crime News Insider community, our hearts go out to the Uvalde community. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Crime News Insider Podcast. on this podcast are solely of the speakers and do not reflect the views of the Deputy DA Association nor the District Attorney. Questions and comments can be sent to crimenewsinsider at gmail.com. Please leave a rating and review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Remember to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at San Diego DDAs. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Well,